Before we start, we'd like to thank Scrivener for sponsoring the show. Scrivener is a writing app that I've been using for about four years now. I've written four novels and two novellas with it, along with half a dozen works in progress. For a long time of trying various word processing and writing programs, Scrivener is the best that I've found. The organizing power of Scrivener makes it easy to wrangle a story with dozens of unique characters and multiple interwoven plots, which combines with a fast and intuitive interface that makes character dossiers and chapter outlines just a key command away. Adding to this is a powerful export suite that allows for a Scrivener file to be turned into a wide variety of digital formats with just a few clicks. If you want to try it out, they offer a free 30-day trial, and if you decide to buy it and help support the show, you can use the code RATIONALLY during the month of March to get 20% off. Hope you find it useful. episode 27, Description. So why is description such an important thing to talk about? It seems like a pretty simple or straightforward thing, right? Yeah. Well, I think it's, in some sense, it's the only thing that you're doing. I mean, okay, you're, you're also explaining things at times, but every narrative thing, every characterization thing, it, it starts with description. You're telling the audience something, and it, whether it's how someone looks or what a place is like, you're sort of painting that picture in their head. And that's now, like 90% of writing. Well, okay. Editing is 90% of writing, but <laughs> description is, is the big important thing. Right. Outside of dialogue and... Yeah. I mean, to, to some extent, even if you're if you're saying what someone is doing, it's a description. So I guess outside of dialogue. Mm-hmm. In our exposition episode, I talked a little bit about how I consider description to be sort of a almost a subset of exposition. Like if you're telling me something about what someone looks like or what a, what a room is like or if you're describing some process to me that description is part of expositing information to the reader right and a lot of times if you're when people say show don't tell a lot of times for describing a person or a place or a thing you're doing straight telling but that telling is a way of showing something else right uh, if you say that a guy has unkempt hair mm-hmm. that's a straight description of what's happening with his hair which some readers might find useful or interesting or whatever but you are also showing me something about his personality right he doesn't care about physical appearance or that he's like frazzled and has other things going on or if you said he had carefully unkempt hair that would say something completely different about his character Right. In addition to what it's saying about uh, his actual physical appearance. Show, don't tell is a good rule. It's like the the basic rule that will get spat at you a lot if you're just starting out writing and looking for advice. Mm-hmm. Show, don't tell is good for personality things. Right. I think that's the biggest part where you can't just say, you know, she was bright and bubbly. You can, but you, it's better if you don't. Right. The va- The value of description... I think comes separate from the traditional sense of what people think of when they think of description. Like when someone says this author uses too many descriptions or something like that, what they'll usually be referring to is that the author takes like the attention to detail that the author takes to describing the characters and their outfits and 
like every little thing that they do all the time maybe too much information that's not that's not necessary laurel k hamilton has a thing about clothing that that characters are wearing and to be fair she often has very elaborate and distinct types of clothing that her characters are wearing that say, say sometimes say things about them but she does it to to an extreme level where that every single time a character shows up you've got half a page of of description um, about how they look and what they're wearing and all those things, and that can get that can get tedious for some people. Uh, yeah. George R. R. Martin does this with food. Yeah, I'm just about to say that. Yeah, uh, every time someone is having a feast or eating a meal of some kind, like he he, he will in loving detail describe all the di- dishes and what they're made of, and and sometimes even how they're arranged. And a lot of people again, they they just start skimming, right? Because it's just they don't care. They don't care about the the food. They don't care about the clothing. They just want to get to the story, the dialogue, the action, whatever it is. And I would argue that you know there's a time and a place for that level of detail for sure. But generally speaking, what you want to do with your description is, like you said, show some aspect of the characters. Do something you uh, useful with that description. Have it do double duty. Because while it's sometimes important just to give description to give the, the reader something to envision when they're, when they're reading, which we'll talk about later. Like you said, it, it's, it's part of the show, don't tell. Yeah, and I think the big problem with George R. R. Martin and food is that he just does it all over the place. It's not, like, if I were reading a story about a impoverished boy from the country who comes to the big city and he's sitting down for, uh, I don't know, he's like a guitarist or something, mm-hmm. and he's sitting down for lunch with an agent, and there's like all this food in front of him that he's never seen before and it's all these flavors and whatever that's an appropriate moment because you're telling me something about this boy right. and his experience with the changing thing for george r. r martin and food it's just like every time someone's sitting down to a meal especially if they're like a noble and it's like a fancy meal i mean he just wants to describe a fancy meal it's not telling me <laughs> anything the second or third time it happens right if you wanted to to put a stark contrast between how the the commoners eat and how the nobility eat that's a good that's a good reason to describe the food if you wanted to drive it home that someone is on a journey and traveling and therefore like the food that they eat when they're traveling is like dried granola and and jerky and rations but like when they're in a city they can enjoy more like enjoyable food more like you know luxury foods that might be a good good a good subtle reminder of that you know to 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 do that and so you've got to you've got to really think about when you're describing things and why same thing can go with clothing if you're describing clothing every single time a character shows up maybe you just care too much about clothing and your reader probably will not care as much as you do if you describe clothing when it matters the, the reader knows like this is something important which might not be your intention necessarily because you might want to conceal something in that regard but we'll talk about that later also with the um, foreshadowing yeah i think that describing things when they don't need to be described is one of the biggest mistakes that i see beginner authors do because mm-hmm. they just describe they describe everything i guess because they like have it in their head and they want to get it on the page but it it can it can really affect pacing mm-hmm. in a negative way if, if you know, people are skimming past stuff because they, like, don't care. Uh, almost worse than that is people reading through it and not caring, but, like, feeling that they have a duty to. That's not a fun reading experience. So as a general writing thing, I think that you should use as few words as possible when you're trying to get your description or characterization or anything across. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it's more noticeable with description because people will start to skim. They'll start to skim, and then they definitely know when it's happening. Like, if you read some of the kind of generic young adult dystopian novels, I haven't read too many of them, but a lot of them will just start with this, like, a description. Because it's like, okay, 
as an author, I know it's important that people know what my character looks like. Scene setting, character description, yeah, yeah something like that. So I just I need to describe this character, and you know we're just going to spend a paragraph and do it. And I get to that paragraph and I'm like, oh my god! I, if it's not going to f- impact the story, I don't usually care that much about what a person looks like. Like they're just going to get replaced by someone in my head. That's kind of a individual reader thing, though. I've had people tell me I can't remember. It was like a, some short story I wrote. There was no. I think it might have been the Randy Prize, maybe, but there was like no, there was no description of the protagonist because right. I figured it's like it's a short story. No one, yeah, no one needs to know exactly what this character looks like. You're not you're not going to be spending hundreds of pages getting to know them and spending spending time in their head. Right. I'm not going to spend like five percent of my word count describing <laughs> what someone looks like. Right. It's a poor use of the amount of attention that I am taking from the reader. Absolutely. Yeah. The general idea of economy of, of words and trying to keep your word count low and get as much information across as possible with as little words as possible. That brings up the idea of what level of detail you need when you need it, right? It's it's not to say that you can't ever bring up uh, what someone's house looks like or things like that, but you do, generally speaking, feel an urge to describe things the first time they show up, right? You don't want to have five chapters go by with your character then start describing what they look like, because at that point, readers have already pictured something about for this character, and you can start to clash with that if it's not if it's not obvious. But at the same time, you don't want to front-load tons and tons of detail every time a character shows up. So the idea of just finding one or two, one or two important traits that you can focus on and can get across something about their character or something about their past or things like that, you know, if you feel the need to describe the hair color okay sometimes you need that it's useful to to differentiate a bunch of different characters but if you need if you feel the need to describe if you feel the need to describe their physical attributes for every character that you meet then you might want to relook at your story and think like how important is this description can i get away with with half as much for each character and probably you can right it's probably going to seem more important to you than it is to any of your readers yeah I've also been hit on the other side where people have been like, uh, I have no idea what this person looks like. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's never, never talked about it. Mm-hmm. Didn't think it was very important. But for some people, they can't like get into the story without it. There is a this was something I learned on less wrong, I think. But there, for a time, there was this debate about whether people actually saw images in their minds. Right. Like when you say that you were picturing something in your head, were you being literal or or was that just like a figure of speech that everyone used? Right. And people had a lot of disagreement about this. And uh, we eventually solved it with uh, MRIs, mm-hmm. right? Because you can look at the visual cortex and see activity there. And it's different in some people. So some people just don't get a picture in their head. Right. It's just it's just like a static data that they're tracking when they read or, or something. <laughs> I don't know, because I always picture a thing in my head. And the first time I read that, I was like, no, that can't be right. Like, those people are just lying for some reason, which is typical mind fallacy. Right. Uh, but so when, when you're writing, you have to calibrate to some extent for the different ways in which people interact with a, a work. A description, uh, for, yeah. Yeah. Because for me, like, I read, I read the word diner, and I, could, I just picture the diner in my head. Right. And I don't need more about that unless it's going to be important or unless it – is going to challenge my initial impression when someone says diner. Right. Or it's going to set the mood. Like if, if there's like, if you really want to note that the diner is 
dilapidated and run down and that kind of thing. That helps set the mood in a, in a scene. But if the mood of the scene cannot or does not need to be relayed through the description of the setting, the description of the setting is irrelevant. Right. And if you're just going to tell me things about the diner that I've already kind of assumed, like Formica tabletops and mm. like leather seats and stuff, I don't know. For me, I don't need that. For some other people, they can't get into the scene without it. Right. I mean, that's one of the reasons that you should have beta readers. You should have beta readers who read things a lot differently than you. Which can Yeah. It can be hard to find someone like that because you, you can't just like... If, you go around asking someone, people how they yeah. experience the world. And I mean... A, kind of a digression here, but beta readers should usually be people that you know enough that you can get good feedback from them mm-hmm. or useful feedback from them. Mm-hmm. And it's not, I, there are a lot of people online who are willing to beta read, but you don't necessarily have a connection with them. And it's, there's a little bit more of a communication barrier, but how visual to get is that's a tough thing. I generally think that, like you said, you focus on the things that most set the mood or most define a character, or which are important for foreshadowing, mm-hmm. but also just do things that are interesting by themselves, if not necessarily revealing, I guess. Right. Like I, I have this this concept of a micro story that I think about a lot when I'm doing descriptions, and if I can put in a micro story somewhere that's just like a little mm-hmm. a little hint at an anecdote or something that I'm not actually going to share in full. Right. Those are always more interesting to me. And I think to most other people who are reading, then just saying, you know, he had a crooked nose or something. T- tell me about how he broke his nose in a fight when he was six years old. And if the if the narrative is one of a limited perspective where you wouldn't say, for example, his nose was broken in a bar fight, if you don't know that, like if it's first person perspective or if it's third person specific uh, and some other character shows up, you can say his nose looked as if it had been broken in a bar fight. Or something like that. Yeah. And again, like even if it's not accurate, even if you know it's not describing an actual thing that happened, it's enough to give a sense of the character that you want to convey. Right. Like you wouldn't use that to describe someone whose nose was crooked that was a prim and proper teacher, unless you were specifically trying to draw a discordant image in your mind. But if there's some gangster thug from the 60s or 70s that walks into a bar and you say his nose looked as if it had been broken in multiple bar fights, that's part of their character. Right. And if you have something like that where it's a assumption on the part of the narrator, you can turn those things around, which I usually find pleasing. Mm. It's like, oh, you find out later on, you know, you don't you wouldn't necessarily do that with broken nose, but you do that with something like a scar. Right. Like, oh, I got that scar in some innocuous way or. I was a veteran or something. I don't mm-hmm. know. So the question of foreshadowing is also important because there's the desire to bring up information that's going to be relevant later in the story without necessarily drawing a big red flag in the narrative that says, pay attention to this, it's going to be important later. Right. The balance between having it there as a Chekhov's gun and having it completely give away what it's what, what, what that's going to be important later is is a is a fine line yeah what you don't want is people to go like hey that's not what i was picturing at all mm-hmm. right if race is going to be important in your story you do need to bring it up probably the first time someone's introduced mm-hmm. i think worm had this a lot where people did not realize that grew was black until it like became a little bit of an issue so people were like oh now I have to revise my mental image of Gru. Mm-hmm. There was a whole big controversy when... Um, con- I say controversy, but anyway. <laughs> there, was, there was a whole big thing when when uh, Hunger Games became a movie. Right, Prim. Where a lot of readers apparently did not realize that Prim was, was black. In the narrative, she's described as having dark skin, I believe. Yeah. And dark skin, you know, 
fair enough. It could describe someone with with just dark tan skin or uh, kind of the dusky skin. Yeah. But apparently, people who were just very personally offended <laughs> by the fact that this this character in the book that they liked uh, was black for, for some strange reason. And yeah. um, <laughs> that's on a, on a less um, on a less idiotic scale. That is a thing that that can happen of Discord, where, again, where you've gone so long imagining a character a certain way that once you get a better description of them, it's hard to bring those two into alignment. Like, it's hard to bring your, your image of them into what the narrative is supposed to describe them as being. There was, there was a story I was reading where a character was described. I don't even remember why I had this happen. I think it was their name. Something about their name or something about the first way they were described just brought up a mental image of this short, kind of older lady with short, dark hair and, like, kind of wrinkled skin. And so I just had this image of this, like, tough, grizzled, like, short lady as this character. Which was a problem because the character was not at all that. <laughs> just, like, they were, like, they were short and they were, they were tough and muscular, but they were young and pretty and, and somewhat beautiful. And, like, I just had everything pretty much off about them. So when this character started, like, kissing the protagonist and stuff, I had just a very, like, I was, there was, like, a barrier in my mind that I just had to punch through every time to get myself to picture what was actually happening and not be confused by the reactions of people to this character as being attractive. Right. I think one of the reasons that things happen like that is because, well, for me, I just sort of steamroll through descriptions sometimes. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen that often. But sometimes I'm just like, okay, like she's a 16-year-old girl. I know what a 16-year-old girl looks like. I don't need specifics. I don't I don't need the specifics. So I, I skim it or I get the picture in my head before the description comes. The description comes like a page late. I've already made up what they look like by the time I get to that description. And so, yeah, I steamroll past them sometimes, especially if I'm not reading closely or if I'm sort of engrossed in the story. That happens to me a lot. So, uh, yeah, you, you need to do descriptions early. Don't tell me what someone looks like when we're, like, in our fourth chapter with them. I mean, and don't tell me too much about what they look like either. <laughs> you, have, you have a very slim window of, like, one to five sentences right when they're first introduced. Right. And five sentences should really be reserved for some, something particular about them. Right. Uh, it should not be five sentences of hair color, eye color, skin color, clothing, and stature. You know, if it's your main character, maybe their love interest, maybe sure. It also depends on the genre, right? You can you can get away with descriptions a lot more in romance. Yeah. And also, it also depends on the genre. If it's something like science fiction or fantasy, you're going to get a lot more descriptions in fantasy and sci-fi, uh, generally speaking, than you are in contemporary stories because if you're describing a alien race or a fantasy race or a locale that isn't really understandable like uh, the inside of a spaceship things like that you can you you've got there's still some memory that you can rely on for play, for for your readers to understand at a at a glance what this word represents but right it's more like you're you're not relying on your reader to fill in the blanks because mm -hmm. they might not be able to fill in the blanks and you're you're not it, I mean, I think it is safer because those moments of dissonance, right? Right. You invent, like, your fantasy race that has these long fangs or whatever, and then you, like, later in the book establish that they meet this creature of that race, and he's, like, one of his fangs is broken off, and it's, like, a sign of whatever in their culture. Someone could get to that, and they'd be like, wait, those guys have long fangs? Right, right. 
so I think it is to some extent an issue of safety in terms of actually setting the scene in a way that it needs to be set. Right. And this is this is not necessarily always an easy thing. You know, it's easy to say keep it short and it's easy to say show while telling, but you know, sometimes there are genuinely difficult ways to describe things. I think like we were talking before with the race thing, a lot of people do trip over how to describe someone's race if they don't feel comfortable just saying black, Asian, white, Hispanic, whatever it is, because those themselves like there's such a wide spectrum that each of those words can can encompass. Yeah, I find this a lot uh, more difficult in fantasy because mm-hmm. you can't say that someone is Hispanic. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you can't. I mean, you could say that they're black, but even that is is like crossing a not an anachronism line, but a suspension breaking line. To some extent. Yeah, dark-skinned is usually the thing that I see the most often for to indicate that we're not just talking about like the, the standard European white race in fantasy stories. Right. There's an interesting thing in, in Game of Thrones, the uh, Dornish are the southernmost country. And the southernmost country is a is a very harsh land. It's, it's mostly desert. It resembles more of a, a Middle Eastern kind of temperature and climate. Yeah. And there's no clear like there's no way to say that the Dornish people themselves are middle eastern obviously because like you said that doesn't make any sense in a, in a fantasy story so the best thing that george r. r martin can really do is just kind of describe their clothing and sometimes their architecture or things like that and you, you kind of just like hope that you draw the the inference on your own but there's also sometimes like wrenches thrown in that because the Dornish sometimes have fair skin or blonde hair and there are fair-skinned and blonde-haired people in the Middle East, but I remember people arguing on the internet at one point about what the Dornish looked like. And then the, the TV show came out, and they were clearly Middle Eastern. And it was just like, okay, well, I guess that's that's what they're going with. Because, you know, it's because it's not always clear, and it's a tough needle to thread. Yeah, it's a tough needle to thread. And you're, when you do fantasy, I think race has the most taken away from it. I mean, uh, I, history, too, to some extent, but you can still call a ballista a ballista. Mm-hmm even though like the etymological roots of ballista probably don't make sense anymore. But people just accept that as translation convention, right. where for race they wouldn't. Right. So what are some of your favorite descriptions of characters or things in, in books? Okay, so um, Chuck Palahniuk. I was really into Chuck Palahniuk in my college years. Mm-hmm. He does a lot of very sort of in-depth, offbeat types of descriptions. I have two from Lullaby. Uh, the first is... It's sort of a, a thing he comes back to, but the details about Duncan are he's pocked with acne scars and his scalp is brown along the hairline every two weeks when he dyes his gray roots. His computer password is password. So that's that's like the all that you learn about Duncan's like physical description. Mm-hmm. But it's so great because it, it paints this picture of him and that has a very profound effect, I think, if if that's all that you know about Duncan going in. Right. Especially his computer password is password. That gets repeated a number of times in Lullaby. Every time that the narrator is talking to someone that he doesn't like, or it's like someone is introduced that he doesn't like, it's like, oh, this. he's like giving a, a description of one of his bosses. Mm. And he's like, oh, he, had, he always knows the weather conditions and he has a lift badge on every one of his jackets mm-hmm. and his computer password is password. And it's this, it's a it's great, like really dismissive running theme. Yeah. Chuck Palahniuk does that a lot. He does running themes in, I think most of his books that have like ways that he has of describing things. And he comes back to them again and again. And then he'll, he does it as sort of like a, not a poetry thing necessarily, but it's, 
gets into kind of a rhythm of it. Yeah. So you see it the second time, and you're like, oh, okay, it's this thing again. Right. And then he'll like turn it around the last time or, or something. Pretty effective. And I like that description. I don't know... I haven't read the book. I probably should, because Polonik is usually really good. But the, the first part of it, the details about Duncan strikes me as something that doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily a good start to it to, to describe as something it's almost it's too on the nose almost it's almost yeah. like you know standing in front of a mirror uh, which which we'll get to but yeah i like that use of a casual behavior to describe a character in the middle of a physical description because behaviors shouldn't realistically speaking behaviors shouldn't tell you anything about how a character looks but we all have associations and i can guarantee that most people who read that description they're not just getting told something about the character, but including that as part of the, the description section subconsciously probably has some effect on how they how they picture the person. Yeah. And like um, him dyeing his hairline every two weeks. To me, that's a, one of the perfect sort of micro stories. Mm. Right. Because it's, it's telling you his like hair color. Right. It's not just telling you what his hair looks like. It's telling you that he has a behavior related to that to his hair and it's like yeah. he has a he has a insecurity about his hair it tells you tells you his age too for that matter yeah you don't get anything more about duncan but like the three things that you know about him are all negative mm-hmm. i guess dyeing your hair isn't necessarily negative but it's it's it, definitely in, in context it's kind of like a vanity thing yeah I think. it's definitely not something that protagonists or sympathetic characters are usually described as this is the theme of beautiful is good and evil is ugly those tropes yeah. that that are so insidious and so hard to combat even when we don't go to the extremes and it's very true that focusing on on physical negatives is something that happens just so much more often with bad guys or characters that are antagonistic or not sympathetic yeah polonic also to some extent just likes describing the world as like this ugly place Mm -hmm. so usually when i'm reading books there aren't positive descriptions Mm -hmm. of people or if they are they're sort of they're sort of undercut with cynicism so uh here's my second from lullaby helen she's wearing white suit and shoes but not snow white it's more the white of downhill skiing and band with a private car and driver on call 14 pieces of matched luggage and a suite at the hotel lake louise he does a lot of these descriptions specific to Mm -hmm. helen any colors associated with her are are just this one specific shade that's described with this whole imagined scenario which i think is a good way of getting in the narrator's head he's sort of like narrating what he sees when he sees this woman more than this color or more than anything like about her really right it does as much to describe the narrator's perspective and beliefs about them as it does to just describe them which is a good way to do double duty with description right i really like that i don't think all authors could make something like that work because it is very on the nose. There's a heavy emphasis on both color and sound. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I like all whites. Uh, I think probably my favorite Polonuk. I'll have to check it out. So I have another one from Audrey Nifnegger's The Time Traveler's Wife. It's like the very beginning of the book. And I th- think this is the first full description of Henry, but he's describing his steps for getting ready for this date. And step six, look in full-length bathroom mirror and behold angular, wild-eyed, 6'1", 10-year-old Egon Scheil look-alike in clean shirt and funeral director suit, which is his sort of like self-deprecating mm-hmm. description of himself. I think that that is the way that you want to do like a rushed through, this is what he looks like, now get on with your life. <laughs> did, you say, did you say six foot one, 10-year-old? 
Yeah, I, I'm not 100% sure on what... <laughs> like, he's trying to look grown up. Because, uh-huh. like, Henry's thing at the beginning of the book is he d- doesn't have his shit together. And that's sort of in keeping with that thing. Yeah, Egon Schiel is a impressionist painter, I think. This is part of The Time Traveler's Life being a very literary book. Right, right. There's a lot of references to artists I've never heard of. Yeah. Well, I never look up stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I did for this, because I was going <laughs> to say it on our podcast. But um, Egon Schiel, I'm like, okay, whatever. I'm, I'm moving on. It's this one sentence, and it's not important. Mm-hmm. It's important for if you want a quick sketch, and you, you need that sketch. The other main protagonist is, is Claire. It's time, The Time Traveler's Life is a love story, basically. Mm-hmm. They made a movie with uh, Rachel McAdams and someone. It wasn't very good. <laughs> I really enjoyed the book, despite its literariness. So this is Claire's description. Claire is wearing a wine-colored velvet dress and pearls. She looks like a Botticelli by way of John Graham. Huge gray eyes, long nose, tiny delicate mouth like a geisha. She has long red hair that covers her shoulders and falls to the middle of her back. Claire is so pale that she looks like waxwork in the candlelight. So yeah, I don't like this description. I do like a part of it, though. The main part of it that I like is Claire is so pale that she looks like waxwork in the candlelight. And I I think because I like descriptions that are evocative or metaphorical. Yeah, and I think only half of this is. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Botticelli by way of John Graham, you know, again, this the reference thing just goes over the heads of anyone that doesn't know who those people are. I'm sure it's wonderfully yeah. descriptive to people who do. But <laughs> It's a signaling thing yeah. to some extent. It's like, hey, get out of this book <laughs> if, you, if you aren't willing to put up with mm-hmm. that. I actually, in preparation for this episode, I was reading through some descriptions, and I, I opened up Lolita by uh, Nabokov, mm-hmm. and I got like one page in and he is he's like using this very literary language and he apologizes for it so he's like okay i hope that i haven't driven you off by now it's like on page two mm-hmm. and i was like you know you kind of did <laughs> <laughs> yeah that 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 is yeah we'll, we'll talk about this more in the literary episode it's it's we, we should we should do that soon yeah so the whole looking in a mirror thing is, is one of those tropes that uh, people are told to avoid when describing yep. a character, right? And for good reason, it, it tends to stick out and not in a good way. But some people feel trapped when it comes to writing a first-person perspective because almost every every way that you could have a character describe what they look like either comes off as vain or out of place or it's the mirror trick in some way, right? Right. One of my favorite ways that I've ever seen this kind of done was by studying people's families, describing the family, other people in the family, and drawing a composite picture from from how similar someone looks between different people. Yeah. But there's a great one in The Dresden Files, the first book. And I specifically looked through Dresden Files for finding descriptions I like because I tend to like books that are not literary, books that are kind of the opposite of literary. And sometimes I, I, I'm called upon to defend non-literary books uh, writing quality, so to speak. Not, you know, the plotting and characters and dialogue and all that stuff, but the writing itself. And I think that I even I forget sometimes how well, quote-unquote, casual writers, not casual in the in the professional sense, obviously, but writers of, of non-literary fiction can still accomplish great things with their, with their descriptions and, and their narrative and their exposition. So Dresden Files is a first-person perspective story, and there's a section where in chapter two at the very beginning where another character is introduced. And this is the first time you get a description of, of what Harry Dresden looks like. But because he's the one telling the story, the way he does it is by describing what Karen Murphy looks like. 
and the paragraph is like this. Karen Murphy was waiting for me outside the Madison. Karen and I are a study in contrast. Where I'm tall and lean, she's short and stocky. Where I have dark hair and dark eyes, she's got Shirley Temple blonde locks and baby blues. Where my features are lean and angular, with a hawkish nose and a sharp chin, hers are round and smooth, with the kind of cute nose you'd expect on a cheerleader. So, the writing itself, whatever. Maybe it's not the best writing ever, but I like that technique of... In a first-person perspective story, the way you describe yourself is by comparing yourself to someone who's different than you. Because it, it, it accomplishes the double description at once. It doesn't feel as, as forced, to me anyway. It just kind of came across as a, oh, these are two people who, who look very interesting standing next to each other, walking, walking beside each other into a, into a police investigation, as they do. Yeah, I think that's... I think that went on about a sentence too long for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's one of those yeah, it's one of those things where like I already knew what Harry Dresden looked like after the first chapter. Mm-hmm. I had decided what he looked like and I get to that and I'm like, okay, we can we can go on. Mm-hmm. If if I was if I was rewriting this, it would just be Karen and I are studying contrasts, why I'm tall and lean, she's short and stocky, where I have dark hair and dark eyes, she's got blonde locks and baby blues. I'd take out the Shirley Temple. <laughs> Like, not that that's necessarily a super dated reference, but it kind of is. Uh, I don't expect... See, it kind of is, but it, I like it because it, it's the suggestion mm-hmm. that she's not to be taken seriously, which is in contrast to her characterization right. like five seconds later. Yeah, cute nose you'd expect on a cheerleader. Like, I wouldn't include that, but I can see why he's he's trying to draw a contrast between how she looks and what her what her character is. Right, yeah. so he's he's purposefully downplaying any any aspect of her physicality that might be treated seriously or, or maturely. Yeah, there's another description that I really liked in the first book of Harry Dresden, which is chapter three when Johnny Marcone is introduced. Gentleman Johnny Marcone didn't look like the sort of man who would have my legs broken or my jaw wired shut. His salt and pepper hair was cut short, and there were lines from sun and smiling etched into the corner of his eyes. His eyes were the green of well-worn dollar bills. He seemed more like a college football coach. Good-looking, tanned, athletic, and enthusiastic. The impression was reinforced by the men he kept with him. Cujo Hendricks hulked like an all-pro player who had just been ousted for extreme, unnecessary roughness. I really liked eyes were green like a well-worn dollar bill. Yeah. Like, that struck me even the first time I read it as giving me an impression of this character. Even knowing that he's a gangster. Yeah. A mob boss. He, like... That that is such a great way to describe not just how his eyes look, but what what you associate with him going forward. Right. Yeah. It's very evocative. Yeah. So yeah, the there are character descriptions that in a book like The Judgment Files that would make me roll my eyes sometimes. Jim Butcher has a tendency to write female characters all very attractive and, and stunningly beautiful or or at the very least at the very least just unusually attractive. And some of that can go down to the unreliable narrator. Uh, but I think, on, honestly, part of it's just Jim Butcher as a writer, especially in the early books. It gets better in the later ones, but in the early books, for sure. Yeah, some some of that's genre, too. Mm-hmm. That's sort of... Noir, detective noirs kind of story. Yeah, of the... detective noir or hard-boiled. You're doing a detective story in the traditional vein. Mm-hmm. You don't have that many unattractive females. Right. <laughs> especially if they're among the principals. They're right, always... if they're with the client or the, the the bad guy or something. Yeah. So there are a lot of descriptions in, in the Judson Files that aren't necessarily great, but there's also some that I really like. And I think using that, that kind of imagery and that association of contrasts or items that you use to reference things, if, if done well, can, can work very well. It evoked a certain feeling and association. Yeah. I really like those 
that's that's one of my favorite things about noir or or hard boiled or or mm-hmm. the varieties of uh, detective stories. They always they always dip into that sort of colorful description that makes description a lot more worth reading. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna read you one from uh, John Ringo. There will be dragons. Uh, John Ringo is one of those people that people who who like literary fiction. This is he's like one of the people that they they talk about when they talk about non-literary fiction and how lowbrow it is. Um, so, uh, with his calloused hands, massive forearms, graying hair and beard, and heavy set physique, he could have been mistaken for a medieval master smith, or perhaps a lord with a hobby. That's that is just that's not good writing. <laughs> it's functional. Mm-hmm. I will give it that, but. It doesn't really say anything. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't. It's not communicative. It's not evocative. Certainly, M- mistaken for medieval master smith brings images to my mind. Perhaps a lord with a hobby does not at all. That doesn't. I don't even know what that means. Like a lord with a hobby, as in like he's. I guess because he's regal, but he still works with his hands and he's still got muscles. I, I can kind of see what he's going for with that. But the first line of it. With his calloused hands, massive forms, graying hair and beard, and heavy set physique, is very boilerplate functional. Yeah. And then he goes for the for the evocativeness kind of with those next two lines, and more miss than hit, I would say. Yeah, uh, especially like medieval master smith. Mm-hmm. Like, if you just say he looked like a medieval master smith, that that is, I think, an example of why people say show and don't tell. Right. 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 Don't tell me he looked like a medieval master smith. You've got the massive forearms. You've got the calloused hands. Those are the things a medieval master smith would have. Yeah. You don't need to then say he looked like a medieval master smith. And this goes for descriptions of people's moods all the time. This is something that I'm still working on in my own writing. Stop describing how characters look or how they like to, to tell you how they feel. Like he looked mad. She looked sad. She looked excited. Describe what they look like to get that feeling. Yeah, it's one of the reasons I think editing is so important. It's because I find myself writing bad sentences mm-hmm. or bad descriptions, and then I come back to them and I'm like, oh no, that's that's just the most dry way that you could do it, mm-hmm. right? Which is again why editing is so important because that's the that's <laughs> part of, that's part of the point of editing. It's the it's that you you're able to look back when you're writing the first draft or even the second draft or even the third draft. Part of it is just getting through the story. If you can just get if you just want to get to Get the chapter done with and make sure you've got all the ideas in your head out on paper. It's okay to just rush through it and be like, you know, he was upset. She was angry. Whatever whatever it is. And later on, you can go back and look it over and find better ways to describe that stuff. Yeah. I just don't like editing that much. It's the problem. <laughs> My national novel writing month is uh, Dark Wizard of Dunkirk, mm-hmm. And I have gone back to – I've just in the last few days started rereading it. I did it like every November. I do like 50,000 words a month, so mm-hmm. I would like read back sporadically in October to prepare myself for November. Right, right. So it's not entirely fresh, but some of the stuff I come across, I'm like, oh, this is, this is not... I would have a talking to myself about things. Right, right. <laughs> about the finer aspects of writing. Just be like, oh, that's not, that's not how, you, how you describe what a person's feeling. Mm-hmm. Not how you describe a place, especially if you're... It's like high fantasy, I guess. Right. So it's like trying to evoke a sense of place and wonder and they're like spectacular things and some of them are just rote descriptions of those things that aren't that don't evoke the correct feeling yeah evoking feeling i think is probably the main thing i'd want people to get take away from all this because it's not enough just to describe things if you if you can help them feel something at the same time that's what you're going for 
Yeah. The, the description describing things at the base level is level one. Just make sure the ideas that you have in, in your head are being psychically transmitted through the words that you write. But it's never going to look exactly like you envision it, which is fine. But at the second level of that, you want to be economic, right? You want to make sure that you're not spending too much time getting that across. But if you can be evocative too, if you can, like you said, tell a little story, make a comparison, something like that, to, to associate a feeling or a tone with, with the setting or the, or the person, I think that's great. That's probably the, the best way to not just get the description across, but make it part of the entertaining flow of the story. Yeah. I'm going to uh, read just one more thing about a description of a place rather than a person. This is also from Dresden Files, the police station, when Harry heads to the police station for the first time. Not the first time ever, the first time in the story. I made a quick time down to the station, knowing Murphy would want to hear this from me face to face. The police station Murphy worked in was one in an aged complex of buildings that housed the Metro Police Department. It was run down, sagging in places like an old soldier who nonetheless stood at attention and struggled to hold in his gut. There was graffiti along one wall that the janitor wouldn't come to scrub off until Monday morning. So that line... It was run down, sagging in places like an old soldier who nonetheless stood at attention and struggled to hold in his gut. I loved that line. That was that did more to flesh out not just what the building looked like in my imagination, but give me a sense of this, this that area of the city, the, what you know, what the police station tone is going into it. Just saying that line allows me to envision all sorts of of minor details, you know, like grime on the tiles. Kind of maybe like a crack in the countertop when he when he goes to the front desk, things like that. You don't have to tell me all these little details as much anymore because now I have a tone that will help flesh out the rest of it. Yeah. And there's a thing in, in series of books where you're kind of forced to describe the same things over and over and over again. So, you know, like Harry ends up having to describe Murphy once per book, every book. And finding new ways to do that can be challenging. Yeah. And in book two, he do, he describes the police station again. And instead of using the same imagery, he says, The Special Investigations operates out of a big, run-down old building, a huge cube that has managed to hold up solidly in spite of the years, the grime, the smog, and the graffiti sprayed on its walls. It has bars over the windows and sits hunkered amidst buildings much taller than it, like a faithful old bulldog amidst a crowd of unruly children struggling to maintain peace and order. I could probably do without the struggling to maintain peace and order, but like a faithful old bulldog amidst a crowd of unruly children, again... It did it did a good job in evoking a, a, a feeling to associate with this building and the police and by extension the police that worked there. Yeah, I'm wondering how easy that is to do in different like voice because mm-hmm. Dresden Files are in the sort of noir genre. Yeah, or they're adjacent to it, and I think you can get by with descriptions like that a lot easier in noir because people expect them. It's one of the things like we say don't 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 describe things in minute detail, but you can do that if that's part of the voice. Mm-hmm. If you want to have a, like a narrator or or something who's very exacting about things and will immediately tell you like these minute little details that can become part of your voice, but it's hard if you include some of these evocative images. It's harder to do that if you're writing from a different perspective. Yes. Right? Of someone who would not necessarily Think, think evocative things. thoughts. Yeah. yeah. And Harry Dresden, his, the character, is not necessarily someone that would think evocative thoughts. You know, he, he's very plain spoken. He's not a someone who, who talks in flowery language or metaphor. But it works for him to think in metaphor because, like you said, it's part of the it's part of the genre and narrative. Yeah. Someone made a comment on Glenn Morton about that. Mm-hmm. There was some line that was used. And they're like, well, I mean, we're 
we're in third person, but we're in this specific person's head, mm-hmm. right? And they wouldn't think like that. And so it kind of takes you out of that headspace that you're occupying or trying to occupy. That's one of the, that's like a higher level thing to worry about, but. Right. I think these kinds of things can be done in other genres too, though. Like it, it, it's not as easy and it doesn't, maybe yeah. it doesn't feel as familiar, but like, you know, describing a, a dark forest in a way that makes it seem menacing by evoking imagery. I think I've seen done before or ships in space. Right. You know, resembling uh, resembling like fish or something like that in, yeah. in a school or something like whales. There's ways that you can can use imagery and metaphor. Yeah, it's just it's one of those things that keep an eye on, I guess. I was just thinking about how how like that works in Dresden Files, but it, that same those same sorts of tricks mm-hmm. don't work in other places. Right, you wouldn't use that the description of an old disheveled soldier standing at attention necessarily in a like as a way to describe um you know what i'm not even gonna say that maybe you would i was gonna say you wouldn't use it to describe like a a police department in a in a fantasy like a like a sheriff's office in like a fantasy setting or like a just just a car's office in a city you know in a in a fantasy setting but if that's the if that's like a like a like a, a poor city or like a poor part of the city like maybe near the ghettos of the city or something it might still work i don't know yeah. Well, to use one extreme example, there was a book, The Curious Instant of the Dog in the Nighttime. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, I don't know if you read that, but I have. Like that, you couldn't you couldn't use those kinds of evocative descriptions in a book where the main character is an autistic boy. Right. Who who does not speak in that voice? Voice is not something I'm very. It, it's something that I work on but I don't think it comes very naturally to me. It's hard to switch voice from one to another. And it's especially hard to do that in editing when things aren't really flowing, right? And you're trying to change a description to be more evocative, but it has to be evocative in a way that would be in keeping with the character. It's right. like maybe maybe Harry Dresden wouldn't think like that necessarily, but it's not 100% out of the ordinary for him. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So yeah, what are we talking about next week? Well... Episode on description, episode on creative theft, how to take ideas mm-hmm. from your own fight scenes, if mm-hmm. you want to do that. Uh, we can do an episode on literary fiction. We should probably do that one sooner rather than later, because we keep, we keep mentioning it. You want to do which one which? one, which? We'll do creative theft first. Okay. It needs a better title than creative theft. Creative appropriation. Mm-hmm. So that does it for description for now. We're probably going to revisit this topic again at some point in the future. Join us next time for creative theft or creative appropriation depending on how we decide to title that episode (laughs) and yeah thanks for listening